Welcome to Monty Meets, a new podcast where Monty Panesar interviews sports stars and celebrities. Monty will be learning what makes his guests tick, how they became successful, plus the struggles and challenges they have faced and overcome. You will learn something new about each celebrity. Make sure to leave a review and don't forget to give Monty Meets a five-star rating. My guest this week is a key figure in South African cricket. He has been broadcasting for many years and is a very experienced commentator. He is known for his unique style of commentary. Oh, he's clubbed that and he's gone miles. He's just one of his many commentary lines. He lives in LA. He is the Hollywood of commentary. Welcome to Monty's Meet and this week I have a very popular guest who is actually uh, a popular voice in um, cricket and he's entering that space um, of Richie Benno I would say a well-known commentator around the world I welcome you Mike Hazeman thank you for joining us Mike Monty thanks very much and uh, no one enters the the space of Richie Benno let's just make that, make that nice and clear because Richie was Richie I was lucky enough to do a, a bit of commentary with him during the 2003 World Cup and uh, to this day it's still my highlight and uh, he was he was outstanding but uh, nice to have a chat to you. Yeah brilliant yeah and uh, so uh, how, how are you how is uh, you know the life of being a commentator? Uh, wonderful you know I, I've been doing it for a long time now I started in uh, 1994 I was still playing actually and I, at that stage I was playing in South Africa, just so the, your your um, podcast uh, listeners know, I uh, grew up in Adelaide, born in Adelaide, grew up in Glenelg, where the Chapels played, uh, played for that same club, actually, that the Chapels played for, and, and got to know Ian a little bit. Um, in fact, my big connection with Ian Chapel, who was always my hero, and uh, who was your hero, Monty? Well, it was Bish and Beatty because oh, I bowled left arm spin, but we got a small connection because I played for Glenelg when I was in Adelaide oh, for oh. the Darren Lehman Academy. Oh, well, there you go. I didn't know that. There we go. Okay, terrific. I mean, I was lucky, really lucky that um, uh, Ian Chappell's dad um, coached me a lot for a couple of years. So, and Greg Chappell's dad, of course, and Trevor. Uh, so that was a nice little uh, overlap as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, grew up in Adelaide, um, lived in Adelaide for 23 years. And then um, after going to South Africa, then lived in South Africa for the same amount of time, 23 years. And now, what am I, 14, 15 years in uh, Los Angeles. So um, I'm loving life and it's, uh, it's great, you know. And I always think the definition of a, of a good job is forgetting what day of the week it is occasionally. And, and that happens. So that's, that's good enough for me. I think that's a great way of looking at it. Is, you know, if you're in a good job, you, you don't know what the day is, um, is a sign that you're in, 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 a, in, a, in, in the right place. Um, so let's, let's start off, you know, with your, with your early career. You know, you're known as a broadcaster. But before we talk about that, um, shall we talk about the Rebel Tour? Why did you represent Australia 11 in the South African Rebel Tour? Really good question. And it's something I have, have rarely been asked. And I'm going to give you the answer. Um, at the same stage, I'm going to cut it short. At the same stage um, that the Rebel Tour uh, invitees um, were being approached, um, I was 23 at the time. I'd had two really good years of Sheffield Shield in um, cricket in Australia. There was an under-25 uh, side to Zimbabwe being selected, uh, and there was a national squad being selected. 
Now, um, a lot of the pundits, I've got runs, I've got 90 against the West Indies uh, for South Australia. A lot of the pundits, um, including Clive Lloyd, were tipping me to be on the, and he was captain, including me, to be on the Ashes tour. Uh, others were saying, no, he'll be captain of the under-25 side to go to Zimbabwe, which I'd been to a couple of years previously when I was 21, I think it was. Um, but anyway, as it turned out, I was neither. So it was just quite extraordinary. I thought, well, hang on a sec, these guys don't think I can play. Um, the very, I was working at a shop called Rowan Jarman in Adelaide, which I'm sure you're familiar with, with uh, um, Monty, where uh, Nugget Reese, of course, is uh, always busy there. And um, the very next day, the chairman of Selectors, who was one Greg Chappell, who I didn't know, uh, came into the shop and I was going to front up and say, well, what the hell happened? Why haven't you selected me for either of those squads? But for some reason, I didn't ask him, which is one of those sort of closing doors uh, situations in life. Two nights later, a uh, phone call at my girlfriend's place and how the hell Ali Baka got my girlfriend's phone number? I've got no idea. <laughs> but uh, the phone rang at my girlfriend's place and um, I thought it was someone playing a fool, actually. And for five minutes, I kept saying, no, I know this is not Ali Baka, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So the fact that I wasn't selected in any of those uh, squads made me believe that the um, Australian cricket selectors didn't rate me. Um, and I was sort of maybe a little annoyed at the time, I guess, which happens. Um, so the next day I had to fly to Melbourne, uh, met the lawyers, all that sort of stuff, and uh, decided to go on the Rebel Tour. Now, I had had, my best mate was Andrew Hilditch. I had had a long time, uh, many months of discussions with Digger, Andrew Hilditch, uh, about the pros and cons of the Rebel Tour because he's a lawyer and he decided not to go at the last minute. So I knew the ins and outs of it, so it didn't take long to actually make that call, but I never thought I'd go because Australian cricket was always my thing. I subsequently found out that I was um, going to be placed on standby for the Ashes Tour, uh, but wasn't told. So um, that's just one of those things that happens in life, and that's uh, why I signed. Do you think it was the right decision? Going on the Rebel Tour to South Africa. When I saw Look, looking at what was happening in South Africa at the time, very naive, extremely naive. I was 23 years of age, very naive. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think that um, one of the reasons that I spent 23 years in in South Africa uh, was to, I mean, I went to some of the townships and, and coached from time to time, and a lot of that stuff is window dressing. We all know that, but I sort of got stuck in and did a bit of uh, coaching at townships. Uh, I also um, coached at. Uh, I was coach of the. Transvaal B team at that stage and was trying to help quite a few of the youngsters come through and my years in cricket in South Africa I've always been proactive um, but I was enormously naive at the time I don't have any regrets but I was naive I mean, there's no doubt about that I'm the first to admit it uh, I also won't um, deny the fact that there was money involved you know that's um, that's an important part of, of my decision making um, I like to think that I live my life fairly honestly and and I'll uh, admit all those things um, I also think that the tour, I mean, the cricket, we were there for two years from 85 through 87, two lots of four months. The cricket that was played was um, extraordinary cricket. I also like to think that it kept the, the cricket torch burning um, at the exclusion of some, of course, um, which is the history of South Africa. But it's just wonderful now to see people coming through and people like um, uh, Temba Bavuma and those sort of guys is now the new captain and Rabat is one of the diamonds of world cricket. Um, yeah, naive, um, but don't regret it. Don't regret it, and, and uh, I'm comfortable in the fact that the years that I have spent in South Africa, I think I've put quite a bit back into 
cricket in South Africa from various angles. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. I think I think that is so important. Being a, a such a key figure, a key voice in cricket, that you're doing amazing work, you know, in South Africa. Um, yeah. So let's talk about your time in South Africa. You know, you worked, you know, for ten years hosting cricket show Extra Cover for Super Sport. You know, what was that like? That was five hundred shows of really, really uh, good, fun work. You know, it was a, a weekly start off being a two-hour show, uh, end up being a more concise one-hour show. But that was brilliant. I mean, the nice thing about that is we got all the overseas players coming on the show, got a chance to, for our viewers to, as soon as a, a touring side came into South Africa, got a chance to uh, always invite one or two of the guys and they got to know the general public in South Africa, got to know um, what made these people tick. Uh, but I really enjoyed that. It was great. And that was in between commentary as well. So it was uh, fully uh, immersed, if you like, in the, in the cricket life. And uh, what's better than that? You know, you're sort of uh, breathing it every day and, and uh, really stuck into it so i really enjoyed that that was uh, 10 years a good slot yeah that was uh, I, I think that kind of was a, a perfect stepping stone um you know to establish yourself as as one of the key sort of figures in in in, in commentary um how close was your relationship you know with alan stanford you know and what are your thoughts when he got convicted for fraud charges what alan stanford did for cricket in the west indies was really quite extraordinary however it wasn't his money and that's the sad part about it um you know i was quite shocked uh when i was asked to join um alan stanford and, the, and stanford 2020 basically and, and obviously uh, worked on that 20 million dollar game uh, but i was there for involved for three years with stanford as the front man uh, for that uh, you know we all did our due diligence and subsequently found out that um, a lot of the stuff that uh, he had been accused of, or some of the stuff he'd been accused of was uh, not available to read about uh, through one way or another. Um, so I, we were all shocked. I mean, I can tell you that uh, literally two months before the walls came crumbling down, um, I was with him. We, it was after the $20 million game. We went to London. We met with our, the advertising guys, the marketing guys, the lawyers who are all in London. And he was there for a World Finance Man of the Year award, which he won. Um, Mittal came second and Richard Branson came third. So it's a, it was a massive award for all the world businessmen and that sort of bit. So, you know, a lot of people didn't know what, uh, what, he'd, what he'd done basically. And, you know, so it's, he, his heart was in the right place uh, in respect to West Indies cricket. And, and his view was that if people, in, he was the second biggest employer of people in Antigua. His view was that if cricket was being played well and people were in the, and the, and the uh, people in the Caribbean were enjoying their cricket, then their output from a work point of view was going to be improved. So all the things and all the, the, the Stanford legends that were involved and I've followed quite a few of them to all the various islands and that sort of stuff. So it, it was the, the theory was right and the way it was going about it was right. It's just that there was not money that was owned by him and, and it was heartbreak for a lot of people clearly who um, to this day have not got any money back. And that's, uh, that's it's extremely, extremely sad. Yeah, very much so. That's, uh, you know, one of them things which, you know, um, we, we don't want to see again, you know, in, uh, in, yeah, in, in cricket. But Well, that was fascinating to know his close relationship with Alan Samford and uh, his in honesty on the Rebel Tour and over 500 shows for Supersport. Wow. But next part, he will talk about his meeting with the Hollywood stars, in particular Angelina Jolie, the voice of a broadcaster, how important that is, and his story with the hurricane.
then you were three years in uh, you know Miami. Now you've moved to LA. You know how comes you you know you live there and do you really like do do you enjoy the American lifestyle? Always have done. You know um, myself, and my wife. We always used to I used to travel quite a bit to the Caribbean anyway for work before the whole Stanford stuff. And whenever um, I did that, my wife Liam would always um, uh, go on the on the trip as well. But we'd also spend time in New York. We just loved spending time in New York. So when the opportunity came uh, to move to the States, we, we leapt at that, um, moved to Miami and, and there for, for two and a half years and the rest of the time in uh, Los Angeles. The move to Los Angeles was simply because we knew quite a few people there. There are quite a few British people we know, a few Australians some South Africans also. So it was a more of a, a cosmopolitan city than Miami. Um, and, and the climate is much better. I mean, I remember one day, Monty, there was uh, there was a hurricane that was coming in. And you know that cone they show in the hurricanes and say it's coming in? That hurricane wasn't coming into Miami. That hurricane was coming up my driveway and my rented house, coming right up my driveway. That's what they were showing. So there I was um, nailing things, covering up the windows and all sorts of stuff. And then the, thankfully the cone missed and or changed and the, and the hurricane missed. But you know, to know a hurricane's coming your way is, uh, is not the, the, the funniest thing in the world, that's for sure. But um, great place for a holiday. Miami, not a great place to live. That's my assessment of it. Whereas Los Angeles is just a great place to live. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, is it, um, do, 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 you ever, do you ever come across any Hollywood actors or Hollywood celebrities? Well, you actually keep a bit of a list. You know, it's quite interesting. We do. We keep a, a bit of a list and tick a few off. You know, if we see someone, we'll write them down. Uh, Sean Penn was probably the first one we saw. The, the first week we moved to Miami, we were sitting at a restaurant having a meal, my wife and myself. And right next to the table was Sean Penn. We were quite astounded that he was that short. I'll never forget that. Um, but we probably, there's a list of Glenn Close is the, is the last one we've um, we've seen. But there's probably quite a list, of, I guess about 20 that we spotted. And they just sort of go about their um, their normal business. My best story though, Monty, you'll enjoy this. My best story. There I was at my normal coffee shop um, in Santa Monica at the time. We're now living in West Hollywood, but Santa Monica when we first moved. Coffee shop in Santa Monica, down there reading the paper. I put the phone down, turned it off, reading the paper, like you know, the good old-fashioned stuff and a couple of cups of coffee. And uh, my attention um, diverted from the paper and I looked up and I wasn't surprised my attention was diverted because Angelina Jolie walked in. Angelina Jolie, walk, Jolie walked in at the height of the summer wearing a white flimsy dress with no bodyguards, no nothing, just herself, just walked in there. I knew the uh, the guy behind the um, the place ordering who was making the coffee, and of course you know you go to the coffee shops always ask for your name and that sort of stuff. This bloke had the audacity with tongue in cheek to ask what's her name, and of course she said Angie, and he wrote Angie on the cup and that sort of stuff. And um, and there she was, she just sat down at the table next to me and had a cup of coffee. That was pretty cool. <laughs> did, did you get a picture with her? Uh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't go that far. No, but I, it's, I've got a mental picture which will last forever. <laughs> I'm sure that picture will last forever with, is, a, with a lot of people. <laughs> she is stunning, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, no, that's. I think that's, that's that's rocked you a bit, right? You've, you've lost your train of thought now. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I'll say, lucky bugger, Mike Hazeman. What a, what a great memory to have. You take that, you know, you, you remember that for the rest of your life. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk more about broadcasting. You know, what what makes a good you know broadcaster. Um, and sometimes the voice of a broadcaster is is that how people are recognized by yes and i think a voice of a broadcaster is really important I th and i won't name names here but i think there's a couple of really top-notch broadcasters around the place 
who don't have great voices. Um, and I, I never make sort of negative comments about other broadcasters, but I hear people saying that um, they don't like that person or, or whatever, because their voice is, is hard to listen to. And I mean, I'm sure you know, in your mind, you're probably thinking of a couple of, a couple of people, so your, your listeners here. Um, but the voice is really important. And, and that's something that you can train for. I didn't really do any training. I mean, my voice is, I ruptured a larynx, actually, interesting enough, I was a very good Australian horse footballer. And I ruptured a larynx when I was uh, playing footy. So my voice has probably changed from what it would normally have been if I hadn't done that. So it is unique. And people do recognize my voice. But um, so the voice is important. You've also, I think the most important thing is you've got to want to be a broadcaster. You've really got to, got to want to make it your living, make your profession. Um, very few, I guess, are lucky enough to do that. Um, but, you know, if you've got the drive to do it and you really want to do it, some guys get into coach, uh, into broadcasting, but they also want to dabble in coaching. So they're not totally committed to broadcasting. And that's a, And when that happens, I can spot that straight away because the guys sort of you can see and, and sometimes don't get me wrong sometimes it's it's unbelievable to have as a um someone alongside you analyzing things from a coaching point of view that that can make really good tv or, or radio but you can also see that they're not totally committed to being a broadcaster they're a bit lazy on their disciplines and that's important to know you've got to know how your equipment works um like anyone at work you've got to know how your equipment works You've got to know when you're supposed to talk and when you're supposed to shut up and, you know, the score at the end of the over and, you know, quick score so the adverts can get in. Disciplines are really important. Um, I think one of the most underlooked things or overlooked things, that's good grammar, overlooked things is um, appearance. I think appearance, if you're doing TV, you've got to make sure you look good. Uh, you've got to make sure your weight's good. You can't be overweight if you're on TV, in my view. Uh, you, when I say can't, you shouldn't be. Um, you got to make sure you're tire straight. How many times have, have your listeners or you seen someone on TV and their tires crooked or the top buttons undone or something, and it just looks messy? So I think looking good is really important and looking neat because you're there to do a job. You know, it's like you, as if you're turning up for work in a, in a normal environment. You got to uh, impress the boss, I suppose. Um, what else is there? Oh, you got to love it. You got to enjoy it. You know, you got to prepare to have fun. And I, I think these days. You know, Richie Benno, uh, and you're quite quite right, he's, he was the king of broadcasting in my book, and I, and I could name a couple of other uh, English guys as well, but Richie Benno uh, always said, if you've got nothing to add, don't say it. I think things have changed a little bit in broadcasting. I think people, that's a little bit old school, and that's not speaking negatively against Richie, because obviously he started in a, in a different time. I think that's changed a little bit that you do need to sort of talk a little bit more and, and but you've got to add to the picture. You definitely have to add to the picture, but you can't have big sort of breaks of, of silence. The other thing, which is, I think, really important as a broadcaster, you've got to remember that there are so many people around the world these days who are watching live sport on a cell phone. I mean, that's a, that's a huge boom. Um, and I don't think people realize that. I don't think producers realize that as much. For example, they might put up a graphic on TV and it might have too many words in it. If you're watching that on a uh, on your cell phone, you can't read it properly. So there's things that need to be taken into consideration when you um, the people are watching on, on cell phones these days. So, you know, there's just a, a little breakdown of, of the important things that I think uh, work. I, and I think you've got to leave your ego uh, at home as a broadcaster. You can't come in and call the shots and, and not respect your workmates. And, and the producer is the guy who is in charge. The director is the other guy who's in charge down on the van and they want you to do something. You've got to make sure you do it. They're your bosses. You know, you can't sort of um, probably the best person I've ever seen 
from a discipline point of view, from always being available, always being punctual, uh, is Ian Chappell. He's probably the best I've ever seen. So that's someone that I've always respected as a cricketer. And when I saw him working as a broadcaster, it sort of raised uh, the bar even higher for me. So he's a, he's a, he's a great role model from that point of view. Um, what about Robin Jackman? Talking about role models, you know, I think he's played a huge role in you becoming a successful, you know, broadcaster. You've got the Chapel brothers. Um, how how important was he in 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 you be, becoming a successful commentator and and where you are today? When I started, I was still playing cricket for Transvaal, and it was quite uh, an extraordinary situation when I started because suddenly Australia in '94, suddenly Australia were touring South Africa, and the production team. Um, called the working for SABC in those days, suddenly realized there wasn't anyone who really knew the Australians. So they gave me a call and they, and they knew I was playing. They gave me a call and asked me if I'm interested in broadcasting. And I've, I always have been. And when I was playing, I used to always try and spend a bit of time commentating when I um, wasn't scoring runs, which was a little bit um, more often than I would have liked. Um, but uh, he, uh, the guy, a guy called Mike Domain, phoned me and they, they, get, they said, right, we're going to send you on a, a, a trial to see how you go. So it was a Benson Hedges game in South Africa uh, in Bloemfontein. So I went off to Bloemfontein to commentate on that game. Um, did okay in that. And my very next day of commentary was a test match of the Wanderers. So, I mean, it's, you know, the right place at the right time. But to link Robin Jackman in there, Robin Jackman, from the moment I arrived, and I knew him uh, as the former Western Province coach uh, when I was playing, um, and I knew him as a, as a broadcaster, but I didn't know him all that well. But Robin Jackman, from that moment on, from when I walked in to, to commentate on that first day of a test match, of course, you're a little bit toey and a bit nervous, and you didn't uh, know how it worked properly. He took me under his wing and taught me so much throughout that season. So. Jack has become uh, my mentor. Jack has become uh, an extremely, extremely close mate. And I was fortunate enough to uh, spend a lot of time traveling with him as well, going around commentating in various parts of the world. Um, and we had a really close blonde. Uh, really, we didn't have a really close blonde. We had a really close bond. You know, the blonde <laughs> didn't, uh, that, was, yeah, that was my wife later, but um, we didn't have a close blonde. Um, but Jack is a, a great bloke. And um, uh, you know, I joined many when um, I'd spoken to him a, about a month, I think, before he passed away. And we're all very sad because he was such a champion guy when he when he did pass away. But he played a big role in my life. Full of fun too, which is great about Jackers. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. I think uh, um, sometimes everyone has, you know, certain people in their life that just, you know, have a major impact. And I think, you know, Robin, Robin Jackman probably, you know, was that person for you. Um, well, we all have a mentor in our life and Robin Jackman certainly was Mike Hazemans. Well, in the following part, he's going to give his views on DRS, why he thinks American sports better than cricket, and he also rewrote rules of cricket. How fascinating. Who, who, what would you say, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, changes you like to see in cricket, you know, are there changes that need to be made, especially with the DRS, you know, do you, do you really think the captains actually do they really understand how to use the DRS? And and if there is any changes, who should be involved, you know, in helping in, in, in these in, in these stages? When DRS first started, there were in my book two teams, I think, that said, right, oh, we got to learn this. We've got to make sure we get this right. South Africa, Graham Smith, and he's a, a, a very proactive thinker. 
And Graeme Smith did get it right. He understood it properly and uh, formed a little sort of committee in the middle and that sort of stuff, the things that teams try and do now. Some teams, I should say, not all teams. Uh, the other one was Australia. I mean, the other two guys that I'm not, I can't remember England actually being so hot on it initially. And I'm trying to think who was the captain then, Monty, when the DRS first started, 2008, when it first came into play? Yeah, Michael Vaughan. Okay. So I can't remember them being brilliant at it, but I remember South Africa, and of course, I was working a lot for those games and Australia. Um, I think that a lot of teams have got sloppy about it now. Um, I mean, recently, Quinton Akok was appalling, absolutely appalling in, um, in Pakistan. Uh, he would be the first to admit that now. Uh, uh, Pakistan were average. Um, Australia are now average. I think a lot of England have actually got it right now. And I like, I like the way they go about it with Joe Root. But um, very few teams in my book have, have, have got enough, uh, put enough homework. It's such a huge part of the game. I mean, so many times you'll see the, a team review a decision knowing that they're likely to be done, likely to be done by umpire's call. Uh, I mean, that's just, you know, if you think you're going to nick the stump and you're going to be done by umpire's call for LBW, then you just don't, you know, so many teams do it. There is a bit of, I don't know if it's called selfishness, but self-preservation maybe. The one change I want to see is to get rid of umpire's call. I hate it. I really don't like umpire's call. And I think there's a better way to do it. I mean, people, people keep talking about this margin of error. Uh, there was a bigger margin of error when the umpires didn't have um, uh, any assistance from the from all the technical stuff that's available now. So get rid of the umpires' call somehow, and I think it's a matter of just. I mean, I always I started actually talking about this about seven years ago about just having the stumps as a target zone, uh, and if the ball is hitting the stumps, it's uh, and if enough of the ball is hitting the stumps, then it's out. You know, you can't have a situation, and I'm, I, I don't know if you agree, Monty, with me, but you can't have a situation where the same the very same delivery would pretty much, well, would actually hit the ball, hit the stump out of the ground. But because of umpire's call, it's either not out or out. I mean, that makes no sense to me. So get rid of umpire's call, have the target zone being the stumps for LBW. And if it hits enough of the stumps, then it's just gone. You know, just forget about umpire's call. It's, it's something that I think the umpires, to a certain extent, were looked after for a, for a long time with the margin of error being bigger. Uh, it has been reduced now, which is good, but they can go one step further. And I think it's a, it's the answer to me is a meeting of, of minds, uh, proper minds in the game, proactive minds of the game. We could sit down and thrash it out for a couple of days and come up with something that's going to be better for the game. My most confusing thing about it, and, and I'm sure your listeners will agree with this one, is that there are so many people sitting at home watching a telecast and they don't know what the hell is going on with umpire's call. They don't know what it is. They've got to wait for the commentator to call it. And that's wrong. That's wrong for any sport. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of neutral fans, you know, who watch the game. And if they can't seem to understand it, it's going to be very difficult for, you know, most people to to really understand, you know, how the DRS system actually, you know, works. Can I just um, chip in one thing just to finish there? There's one reason why sport, some of the sports in America are so successful, like NFL, like baseball. Uh, like basketball, it's because they're so damn simple. I mean, you can print out, NFL looks complex, but you can print out 12 laws of the game from uh, Googling it, and you will get enough information there to understand the game full stop. Uh, it's my first love. I love I love NFL football. Um, but that's one of the reasons that, that, that American sports are so, are so successful, because they're so simple. Yeah, so is there something that maybe, you know, you, you rewrote the rules with Simon Tuffle, you know, during the Stamford T20 games. Is, is there something that you could do now with this DRS or, or, or you know, just 
sort of brush up a few things, you know, within the laws of uh, of our game. Um, that could be just as simple like it is in the NFL uh, and, and in American sports. We wrote, we rewrote those rules, uh, Simon Taffel and myself, and of course Simon had most of the input, but we re rewrote those rules because for a $20 million game, and we used it for that whole week, for a $20 million game, you couldn't have any, any blatant errors. Um, so in essence, what we did is we made the TV umpire like a tennis umpire. So upon seeing replays, if he thought something was wrong um, and we didn't mind, the batsman was always told not to walk off the, off the field of play, um, but he could uh, intervene and, and get the batsman back rather than, so it was a very simple way of doing it. And it worked very well, actually. And uh, all the umpires embraced it and, and uh, it worked well during that week. So that to me is, is something that uh, also could be looked at. You know, the ICC are the, are the custodians of the game. Um, they have their various um, committees in place. So as much as I would love to be involved in those sort of committees, you need to be invited, I think, to have any impact. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I hope there's enough guys in those committees that actually are uh, thinking uh, enough about bettering the game. Is that something you, you would like to do? Because after all, you know, the, the, the ICC don't control the DRS or the hotspot, all this kind of technology. You know, it's got to be the, 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 the cricketing bodies. They've got to buy this technology. Is that something you would like to be involved with, the committee with the ICC to actually regulate, you know, technology used in cricket? Of course, I'd love to be involved in that. I think that uh, it, the, the DRS needs to be owned by the ICC. It needs to be separately, uh, a, a complete separate entity. At the moment, as you correctly said, it's the cricket boards and, and obviously the production companies uh, that are um, uh, building the price of DRS into their production costs. And that's, the prices are enormous. That's one of the reasons why you don't see hotspot around too much these days, because hotspot costs a damn fortune to run. You know, it's a very expensive thing. Uh, and sometimes it's not 100% reliable. I personally really like it. Um, it works well in England when it's a little bit cooler. Sometimes in the Southern Hemisphere it uh, doesn't work. And we had a, a couple of situations in South Africa. But I really like it as a, as a tool. Um, but it should be owned by the ICC. It should be all operated by a, a designated umpire, someone who is, doesn't actually stand in the middle anymore, someone who is only doing DRS stuff, who's in a truck in the car park, much like that trial a couple of years ago in England. Um, and a global sponsor needs to be found. And I don't think that's very tough, surely, a global sponsor. In fact, I remember Dave Richardson, when he was the CEO of the ICC, he said that uh, if India agree uh, that they're going to get involved in the uh, DRS, which they now do, then there was a global sponsor that was uh, looking to get involved, but that hasn't happened. I mean, let's put it this way. I mean, Emirates are obviously terrific with the umpires, but wouldn't they get greater exposure if they're involved with DRS, for example, a big global company like that? I mean, I would think that's surely not a difficult thing to do, really. But a separate entity owned by the ICC, operated by specialised um, television umpires um, at the venue, of course, in the in the car park in the UK, uh, in the UK, in the US, uh, for baseball and also for NFL. They have a whole uh, situation built in uh, New York, so they operate it um, remotely from New York and that's where those decisions are made when you see them refer and, and go to the, the monitors on the side. But I, I, I think it, if 
it, it could be quite simply done, I think, and therefore it takes all that enormous expense away from the production houses that are producing the games and also, of course, the cricket boards. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. You know, they should be a global sponsor. And I, and I think you should get involved with the ICC to to um, rewrite, you know, the technology, the codes, everything that needs to be obviously, um, you know, standardised, I think, in, in, in cricket, you know. And, and that's something I think you could, you could have a, a huge, huge, you could be a huge influential you know figure um there you go mike hazeman wants to be part of the icc committee and he believes in a global sponsor for the hotspot technology as it's so expensive well in this following part he's going to talk about the challenges the difficulty of being a broadcaster what was his breakthrough moment in commentary his love for pakistan and unorthodox cricketers so let's talk a bit more about you know commentary because that's that is your strength um, after all. What would you say the difficulties on commentating you know on, on on sport? The most difficult thing for me as a commentator is to work with a commentator who doesn't want to work as a t with a t as a team. Um, and there are those guys. I mean, it may not come across that way uh, when you're listening to us work or or listening to a broadcast, whether it's on radio or TV. But there will always, every now and then, be that one commentator who doesn't want to be a team player. And to me, that that um, diminishes from the um, the broadcast. It also provide, provides an air of uncomfortability in the in the commentary booth, which doesn't worry people watching or listening, or whatever. But it's just a, it's like being at work, you know, and you you don't necessarily like the the guy who's alongside you sitting in the next cubicle. Uh, it can be awkward at times. I also hate guys that have got egos. Um, and my biggest hate is guys who are commentators who are lazy. I hate commentators who are lazy. That's my biggest hate. And there's many of them. <laughs> Do you want uh, me to name them? Well, are you allowed to name a few here? Or, or are you going to get, you, get yourself into trouble? I could, I, could, I could certainly name some with some egos, but I think some of your listeners will probably guess some of those. Um, but no, I won't name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't want to put yourself in an awkward position uh, when they listen to this podcast and they commentate with you, thinking, "Well, this is what Mike actually really thinks of me." Um, so yeah, so like you know, you, you, your major breakthrough came, I reckon, during the nineteen ninety six World Cup. You know, you commentated in Pakistan. You recently gone back and you commentated, you know, Pakistan in you know South Africa. You know, cricket. Um, where where do you think you know? Pakistan cricket and South African cricket is at at the moment. Is it is it on the up? Pakistan cricket, I think, has got the got the chance to have a, a surge. It really has. I mean, I I went back to Pakistan now. I worked on the South Africa uh, Pakistan series uh, first time for eighteen years that I've been back there. Um, I've always thoroughly enjoyed the mystique about Pakistan. It's always uh, been a, a a bit of a it's always something different when you go there, and I, and I, the hospitality is outstanding, and, and that's something I've enjoyed. You you made it feel nice and welcome. Uh, I love the fact that their players are unorthodox. Uh, Fawad Alam is a, is a perfect example. I, I, I cornered him one morning, actually. And of course, during COVID times, when I say cornered him, it had to be from about 10 feet. So it's not really cornering, but it's, I wanted to, he got 100 against South Africa. It was a brilliant 100. And I wanted to know how he was batting with that stance that he had. And, and for your listeners who haven't seen him, you could Google him quite easily. The, the stance is, it's, uh, Peter Willey used to do something a little bit similar against the West Indies. Um, I was on the staff at Leicester for three years now. Uh, Peter Willey was uh, in the first team at the time. And Peter Willey had that stance against the West Indies, but he did that to, he said, being front on, uh, sorry, being yeah, front on to the bowler. It helped him combat the, the quicker short ball better. 
And Fawad Alam has just got this extraordinary um, massive triggered movements, but he looks a bit like a Chevron tan of Paul on steroids. Um, and basically, he said that he didn't realize that he was doing it. He was playing uh, 10 years of domestic cricket with no televised cricket in Pakistan. Uh, and he kept scoring lots of runs, and his record was averaging 50 throughout his entire career. He kept scoring lots of runs, particularly in Karachi, where the first test match was played against South Africa. And he said when he was shown um, what he was doing, he was shocked. He couldn't believe that he was looking like that. He, uh, but it was just something that crept into his game. And of course, when he was scoring runs, you're not going to change your technique. And it just got a little bit more and more and more front on. Uh, I reminded him that Paul Adams, when he burst on the scene, I think it was against Australia when he burst on the scene for the first time with that really unusual uh, bowling action. Paul Adams thought he had a standard bowling action. He thought his bowling action was exactly the same as everyone else. And he used to be quite amazed uh, at people sort of either chuckling when he bowled or, or staring at him all the time when he bowled. And it wasn't until his brother got one of those little home video cameras and, and had some shots of him in the nets that he realized that he had that ridiculously... Uh, complicated bowling action, which worked so well for him. So uh, Fawad Alam was a, a prime example of someone who was unorthodox in their play. And I'm a, I'm a real huge believer in if cricketers do something a little bit different, it's got to be encouraged because that's a, you know, if you're a, if you can reach a, a standard, then that's going to give you an extra little 10%, I think, because you're going to either score runs because bowlers are not used to, to bowling, providing, you know, your basics are, are correct at the end. That's where it's got to be right at the end. But we can all think of guys who are unorthodox who have succeeded. But uh, that it's, you mustn't um, coach and, and make people like robots. You've got to keep them different as best you can, and, and they will be better for it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think natural talent and, and unorthodox approach is, is absolutely key when it comes to, you know, to, um, grooming, you know, talent and, and making it really... Just one thing about uh, that tour of Pakistan now, the pitches were unbelievable. The pitches for Test Match Cricket were just superb in Lahore and, uh, sorry, Islamabad and also Karachi. Unbelievable. And they brought all aspects of the, of the game um, into the Test Match. And to me, that was also a great delight about Pakistan. I love going to Pakistan. Yeah, there's like there's something I've never been to Pakistan, but it's good to see Pakistan cricket, you know, but, but home cricket being played again. Um, and and I'm sure you know you as a commentator must have had some great moments where you commentated. What was your best? Um, I know you talk about that South Africa game, but I want you to give us another moment which you commentated on a particular moment, and you thought, yeah, I'm glad I'm I'm doing this job. Easy, Matai Murli Duran's 800th Test wicket. I was lucky enough to be on air in um, in Gaul when he picked up his 800th test wicket. It was me and Tony Gregg who were the two anchors uh, for that series. And uh, Greggy being Greggy was pretty keen to obviously be on air as it happened. I was sort of sitting there with my fingers crossed and hoping when Greggy was on air that he, because it, it was a, um, it was a, uh, I think they got 400 runs. So the, the innings went on for a long, long time. And I was hoping, okay, Greg, I'm going to do you here and I'm going to be on air when it happens. And I was, so that was a, that was a huge moment. And, um, I actually uh, was lucky enough to see the front page um, the next morning of the paper. Of course, it was all about the time really doing 800 test wickets, whatever, bloody blah, blah, blah. And uh, someone asked him to sign it for me because they heard that I was on air. So he signed the front page and they delivered it to the commentary box. So that's in my office now. So that was nice. That was a, that was a big moment. I really enjoyed that. And what about worst moment? And you think, oh, gosh, I made a bit of a hiccup there. And, uh, you know, you don't want to repeat that same mistake. How long you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can you can give us your top top worst moment. I can't. Yeah, nothing comes to mind at the. But I, I mean, I, listen, I've made plenty of mistakes. But the one thing about 
being a commentator, uh, you've got to think on your feet. So if you make a mistake, you've got to do two things. You've got to admit to it, I think. Uh, otherwise, people at home will just think you're an idiot because you've done, you said something really stupid and you haven't sort of corrected it. The other thing is that um, you've got to try and turn into something that's slightly humorous and, and uh, that humor has got to be directed at yourself um, somehow. And nine times out of ten, you can manage to, to, to say something which makes you look like a fool in a funny way. Um, gee, what? I'm sure I'll think of something by the time we're done here. So keep going and I'll hopefully come up with something. Okay, well, I'll, I'll get you to think about that while um, I, I want to know more about how, how do you find your rhythm when commentating with different presenters? Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's that's so important. And, and Monty, I'll tell you now, the, the T20 game's got a completely different rhythm as well. Uh, you know that as a player. Um, but rhythm, if you don't hit your rhythm early, and, and it might sound a little strange, but if you don't hit your rhythm early in a in a game when you're commentating and bearing in mind uh, uh, whether it's a test match or one day a test match in a one day you commentate for 30 minutes and for a t20 game you commentate for five overs that's generally how it works in your pairing or your threesome if they go for three commentators at a time um, if you don't hit your rhythm early in a in a game uh, sometimes you that can concern you you know then the next time you're the the microphone um, you're struggling to hit it i mean it's it's rare that you don't if you experience. I feel sorry often for the guys who get asked to come and commentate occasionally. The guys who, they, they do want to be a commentator, but they do the first test and then do the fourth test or the first one day and the fourth one day. And then they come back for the third T20. That's not easy because then they're sort of, you know, on the sidelines, they're probably watching a bit and whatever at home, but they've got to try and jump in and, and try and get it right again. So that's not ideal. You've, you can find your rhythm as a commentator by doing it consistently. Uh, and that's doesn't happen as easy as that when you first start. So you've got to bide your time. And, but it's an important thing. Rhythms are a very important thing. And, and clearly on the T20 game, you've, it's, all, it's all a bit faster. It's all a half a beat faster, I guess. Yeah. Well, that was interesting to know what his best and worst moments were and how to find your rhythm in commentary. Now we're going to discuss four people he would love to take for dinner and he's just got a bit, a few more nuggets about commentary. So let's say if you had to take four people for dinner, who, who, who would they be? I'm sure Angelina Jolie would be. Yeah, she'd be one. Absolutely, she'd be one. Um... Definitely one. She'd probably sit next to me. Um, who would the others be? She... I guess Nelson Mandela. That's a. I suppose that's a, a bit of an obvious answer. But I mean, I was fortunate enough um, to meet him once in South Africa, and of course, living in South Africa at the time when I lived in South Africa, of course, was um, uh, when he was freed and all that sort of business and I spent the, the whole day pretty much in front of the TV watching all that from Johannesburg when he was when he was uh, freed in Cape Town and that was momentous um, when I met him by the way uh, listen I don't know if I met him is the right word um, it was at a Pavarotti concert in um, Pretoria open-air concert and Pavarotti was just ridiculous as you can imagine and my wife was with me my, my wife is a former South African so she was with me and um, so I'm uh, lined up, you know, ready to shake his hand as, you know, as a, uh, there and he comes along and he's, he didn't know me from a bar of soap, of course, but uh, he said hello and he's very uh, nice and polite and whatever, blah, blah, blah. but he moved very quickly away from me and ended up spending uh, about three more minutes to uh, chatting to my wife. So there we go. That was my brief uh, moment with Nelson Mandela, but he would, he would certainly be there. So there's two, four, two more to go. 
Oi. Um, okay, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. It's a, it's a good question. That I haven't thought. I've often thought about asking that question to other people, but I'm not sure I've thought about asking it to myself. I should have. Okay, well, 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 we can go back to I'm your. Making, I'm making notes here. My, my blunder. I think it's blunder. <laughs> Well, well, I was going to say then, uh, it, you know, um, uh, what advice could you give to, you know, um, people who want to come, come into the commentating industry? I would think the best piece of advice is to identify with someone you enjoy listening to or watching on TV. Um, I remember as a young kid, um, I think the day that I wanted, I decided I, I was really keen to be a commentator. It was actually quite a bizarre situation. I was about 12 years of age at my grandmother's house, actually, and uh, Tony Gregg bowled a delivery. Some of your um, more mature listeners might, know, might remember this. It was the rest of the world um, against Australia. Tony Gregg bowled a delivery, which ended up slipped out of his hand as a bean ball, and it hit uh, Graham Watson, flush right on the nose. There was blood everywhere and whatever. And I just remember from that day with the replays they showed they kept showing replays and whatever but just the 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 moment and it wasn't great to watch obviously but just the moment and the commentary around it i distinctly remember that day was when i wanted to become a commentator and i think just because of the the drama of it um so i used to listen and watch a lot of tony gregg uh, i like the fact that tony gregg was entertaining um got to know him a lot later but i liked him as a, as an entertaining commentator so I think identify with someone you enjoy watching. Uh, there's a couple of news readers I watch a lot in the States that, I, that I, I like. So watch someone closely and not necessarily copy them, but just sort of, you know, try and find that. See if you can, you can in your own mind, work at the rhythm that they work at and, and the excitement levels. I think as a commentator, you've got to entertain. Um, I was getting, I mentioned earlier about Richie Benno and how times have changed a little bit. And I was sort of about, uh, I then went to cell phones, but the thing about being a commentator these days is you've got to entertain and you've got to put a smile on people's faces. So if you can tell a story or whatever that's funny and and, and someone's sitting in a lounge room for the morning for a couple of hours watching TV, make them chuckle a bit. I mean, I think that's that's rewarding as a commentator. That's where I was going with that story and I suddenly got way late. So yeah, identify with someone and, and um, but, but keep knocking on doors. When I say knocking on doors, not literally, but keep letting people know that you do want to be a commentator. Of course, if you're a past player, it becomes a little bit easier. If you're, but there are, I think that's turning a little bit. I really do. People are realizing that the, the benefit of a true broadcaster is more these days than they, they did for a while. So I do think that's turning a little bit. So there is hope for other guys who can these days go to some various training schools. There are some training schools in London. There are some training courses, training schools in Australia and the States as well. So there are those sort of things popping up. So I think make sure you identify with someone, keep knocking on doors and keep striving to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I think that's brilliant, brilliant advice. Um, did you manage to uh, find two other guests or are they not coming into your mind at the moment? Can I send you a postcard? Yeah, absolutely. You can just send us a postcard. That's perfectly okay. fine. Right. Um, blunder. So, my blunder, I can't. Well, we don't have to go into the blunder either. I'll send you a postcard and let both. <laughs> okay. And the blunder. I guess and the blunder on the back of a postcard. That's brilliant. So, what's the future? What does the future hold for Mike Hazeman? Um, where would you like to be in the next few years? I'd like to be um, still working, actually. I'd like to, I mean, I'd like to keep doing this job as long as people want to employ me because it's a job that, without being ridiculous, of course, because it's a job that I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, I see another you know, three, four years. Um, so 
You know, uh, Supersport has uh, been with Supersport now for twenty over twenty five years, and they've been really good to me over the years. So that's that's uh, something that I uh, I cherish the work I've done with Supersport, uh, and I'm still doing. I'd love to see cricket take off in America. That would be huge. Um, it is bubbling. I'll wait and see what happens over the next uh, twelve to twenty four months to see how successful that's going to be. But there are some very big uh, corporate um, sponsors getting involved, big names. You know, the, some of the biggest names in the in the corporate world. So that's uh, giving that a, a real positive. I'd like to see uh, umpire's call go on once and for all. Um, that's about it. Uh, yeah, just keep going. And um, I'd like to see test cricket played more at night. I think test cricket at night at the right venue, at the right time of the year, is nothing short of sensational. So I'd like to see that be planned out a bit more because I see that being a, a bit of a future for test cricket. I think if they don't do that, test cricket in some countries might take a little bit of a dive. Um, for example, you asked me about, I didn't answer about cricket in South Africa. That's that's a tough road at the moment. It really is. I mean, I'm not used to looking at tables and seeing South Africa at six, seven, and I think maybe even eight in uh, in T20 stuff at this stage, or maybe one day is. So, you know, that's far from ideal. So, yeah, they've got to get up the the, the list, of course. That'll, that'll be nice. Uh, I'd like to see um, a lot more um, of the uh, black players come through and play in, in uh, South Africa because there is some enormous talent there, that's for sure. Problem South Africa has right now is, I mentioned the likes of Bavumi, Rabada, and those sort of guys. There's some really good Maharaja, some really good talent that are playing test cricket right now. But just underneath that, it's a little barren. So when those guys get injured, then it's hard to replace them. So there needs to be um, greater opportunity or greater um, ability uh, just below them. So yeah, there's a couple of changes I'd like to see, but um, yeah, I'd like to be still going for a while. Well, absolutely. I think I think you got you got decades, you know, in in this industry. It's up to you whenever you want to, you know, retire as a as a media commentator. But I'd like to say thank you so much for you know coming on to Monty's Meets. I think you're, I think you know you, you've got some great insights on 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 how the game could be improved. And uh, you know, I'm sure the ICC at some stage will get you involved. And and, and I'm sure you, you know you could be the figurehead for cricket to be um, you know established in America. So thank you so much for coming on to Monty's Meets. Thanks, Monty. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, that was the wonderful Mike Hazeman, who's been a commentator for over 25 years. And uh, his love for South African cricket, his great advice, talking about identifying with a commentator. And, uh, you know, what he absolutely would love is to be on that ICC committee, and I'd love to see him on there. So, what a great opportunity that was to meet someone who's been in this industry for over decades. So next week, my guest is going to be someone who I played with during my test debut and I took his off stump out of the ground and what a delivery that was. Monty pitching it outside middle, hit the top of off. Well, do you remember who that was? Well, if you do, do let me know on my social media account and let's meet up next week for another episode on on Team Eats.